Angels Podcast with your host, Jason Holman. Alright, is this weird enough for you yet or what? Yeah, I still live in a cave. I'm new to all this technology. Well, what will happen is, is I'll take all this and then I'm going to edit it, you know. I'll throw a, a theme song in there and everything. It'll be all, all catchy and then we'll put it on the internet. But <laughs> um, the, the biggest reason why I wanted to, to do this is because, uh, for one, posterity. For two, um, so that there's like there's there's this story that, that I feel, uh, especially now that I live somewhere else far away, that that I feel like I need to tell or that needs to be told because there's a lot of people are from Detroit. There's a lot of people that are live in other places, and it seems like everywhere I go, I don't have any trouble running into somebody that's from Detroit. So being that you are from Detroit and I am from Detroit, and ironically enough, we, although 17 years separated um, the time that we that we lived in, in Detroit, we both lived in the same neighborhood, so... <clears throat> And we're good friends, and so I wanted to. And I think you have very interesting stories. That and, and feel free to, to leave out what you feel you need to leave out, and include what you need to include. But I don't think anybody's told me as interesting of stories as what you have in the last four or five years that we've that we've come to know each other as well as we have. Um, what I'm doing is uh, I'm recording this in a program that has. Uh, I don't know if it has infinite space, so I may have to switch things up a little bit. But we're just gonna we're gonna head go ahead and, and, and proceed. So, uh, do you remember? Do you remember the first time that, that you and I met? Yeah, I walked in the shop one day. That, that was the first time I met you. And you were, I, I believe, forgive me if I if I'm mistaken here, but you had a flyer, and you were doing bike detailing, and you were doing oil changes. Yeah, on your trying. flyer. Trying to figure out a way to put my garage to use and make some side cash. Right. Well, and then I remember telling you that if we the detail thing was cool because I didn't feel like cleaning bikes and I wasn't any good at it, but that we did oil changes there. And I just remember, I don't know, I, you're kind of, uh, whether you, you know it or not, and I don't think you've ever wrapped your head around it, But and I know a lot of people who know you. Um, you're a... Legend isn't the right word necessarily. I don't want to put you on that kind of a pedestal, but you definitely have um, people have a preconceived amount of knowledge of who you are in in the community that we run in in Detroit. Are you are you aware of that? I don't know what everybody's conception of me is. I I I, I know a lot of people. Um, yeah, I, I I never gave it any thought. So you've been in you've been in two different motorcycle clubs, right. right? And so you've spent the better part of your life as a as an active member of one of two different clubs here in Detroit. We have a unique scene here, do we not? Uh very unique. It's it's unlike this anywhere beyond the Michigan borders. It's 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 not like this at all. The way that it is here. What would you attribute that to? I mean, what what is the what is the unique common denominator that that we see across all of the all the clubs here that are based in Detroit? Well, since the mid '60s, that's that's probably when the majority of of most of the clubs started. Was when there was that big rash of motorcycle gang movies in the theaters. It seems to be a 
about the same time that most of the clubs started, 65, 66, 67. I think that's when those movies were, were pretty big. There's a couple clubs that have been around since the 40s, a couple that have been around since the 50s. Um, most of the clubs that started up, I, w- I won't even use that word, most of them, several of the clubs that started up don't exist anymore. And the, I think the ones that are still around are the ones that were serious about it. Um, but there was just so many clubs around here, I think it was essential that everybody somewhat tried to coexist, get along with one another. Um, and I, I, I don't know what the determining factor is beyond the Michigan borders, but that doesn't seem to go on down there, uh, you know, south of here or west of here. Is, uh, turf seems to be a, a real big thing with everybody, and it really never meant anything around here, I guess. Um I mean, because there's, there's clubhouses in, in Detroit that are literally across the street from each other from clubs that are not. I mean, they're not. there's no official affiliation, right? Yeah, pretty much. There, there's there's uh, cl- a lot of clubs are, are, are close to one another. Um, down on Finkel, there's three clubhouses within a mile of one another. Um, down on Joy Road, there's two clubhouses within a couple miles of one another. Warren Avenue's got a couple of clubhouses. Um, you, just, you just don't see that when you go to other cities. There's, there's, uh, just, they just don't seem to coexist as well. And, and that's, it's been going on for, you know, since the mid-60s. Um, when, I, when I first got involved with the clubs, I think there was 28 clubs belonged to what was known as the Detroit Federation of Motorcycle Clubs. Um, that number's dropped over the years, but 28 clubs in one city—that's that's a lot of clubs. And it's it's not it didn't go it didn't exist without any uh, any confrontation or anything. But that was that wasn't largely based. There was no turf area or that. I mean, what? Are those basically, and, and obviously, forgive me for my ignorance here on, on how you would describe that, but, I mean, it was those were literally almost like personal problems, like the Hatfields and the McCoys kind of stuff, right? There wasn't any kind of, you know, there wasn't, a, there wasn't like a decisive thing that necessarily happened that, that caused this dissension between these clubs where they never could coexist. I mean, because the clubhouses I know of that are on Finkel are still there, and they were there my whole life. I remember being there when I was a kid. In the seventies, yeah, yeah, they've, they've they've been there for a long time. They they probably won't move anytime soon. Um, the the original, and this is my understanding of the whole thing. The original concept um, about the federation was it was formed so that the clubs would have a better way to fight city hall. Um, you know, there would be an incident and, you know, the cops would get involved and, you know, the, the individual clubs just didn't have the the financial resources to, you know, put up any kind of a legal battle with with the law enforcement agencies in the city. So 
somebody got the idea that if all the clubs kind of stuck together and formed this federation, it would be a lot easier for the federation to fight City Hall than it would be for one club on an individual basis. That was the original concept. And then, of course, the the federation, you know, needed to have a little bit of money in the, in the bank to, you know, facilitate that stuff. So they would have events, and all those clubs that were in the federation would go to the events. And I guess just being together at the events kind of caused the situation to have to coexist. So the, the federation was a good thing. Um, it's, it's dropped in... in numbers as far as how many clubs belong to it over the years, but it originally was a real good thing when it started out. How did you, uh, how did you get originally, um, I mean, obviously there's a point in time where, you know, where you you don't ride a motorcycle and you're not into that kind of thing. For some people, I mean, some people grow up in a, in a motorcycle family, obviously, and then other people don't grow up in that environment, but it just, do you remember the first time you were like, God damn, what is that? How can I get one? <laughs> you know what? What? What's your first experience with bikers or motorcycles or you know? Where did that start? Where's the genesis for you getting in, involved? And in, then this is pre-club stuff, obviously, because you don't get involved with that to be in a club. But um, where did motorcycling start for you? Well, I, I I come from a little bit of a motorhead background, but the motorheads that were in my family were more into cars. I had an uncle that raced quarter-mile dirt track down in West Virginia in the 50s. And then uh, I had an uncle and a brother that were into, you know, the high performance and, and muscle cars in the 60s. And uh, they were a pretty big influence on me. And then that same uncle and, and brother that I'm referring to eventually evolved into motorcycles a little bit. And, and that that always interested me. And then uh, back in the 60s, I, I want to say probably around 66, you know, I was in, uh, I guess, probably junior high school, maybe sixth grade, seventh grade. And there was a TV program on called Then Came Bronson. And he rode a sportster and traveled around uh, – you know, various areas out in the, in the Midwest. And, and I always thought that, man, how cool would that be to just jump on a motorcycle and just ride from town to town and do whatever you wanted to do. And, you know, and then you get a little older and you go, well, yeah, shit, the only way you can do that is, you know, if you got a pocket full of money and nowhere to be in, in this day and age, that doesn't happen very often. But, you know, with, with that motorhead background I, I was always interested in that and I ended up getting my first motorcycle when I was 17 um, my last year of high school I actually rode my motorcycle to school that was my transportation and then it just kind of evolved from there um, always liked Harleys never could afford one so the, the bike that I had when I was 17 wasn't a Harley I'm not necessarily going to say what kind it was but um <laughs> I ended up going from, you know, one point to the next and ended up chopping that particular motorcycle and was having fun on it. And, and uh, finally I, I got to the to the point where I, I rode a Harley 
for the first time, and, and that, that first ride on the Harley, was that was it. I, after that, I had to have one, and that was my next goal, was to get a Harley. Ended up getting a full dresser, um, being my first Harley. and uh, You still have that, don't you? I still do. Uh, it was in 1978. And, uh, <coughs> didn't even like dressers. I, I rode a dresser one time. Didn't particularly care for it. But for some reason, I, I ended up, when I bought a new one, I bought a full dresser. And I think I had intentions on taking the fairing and the saddlebags and the crash bars and all that crap off of there. And then the more I rode it, the more I learned to like all that extra junk that was on there. And I ended up leaving all that stuff on there. I, I did, some years later, end up with another... It's a swing arm frame, but... I, I'm reluctant to use the term chopper, but uh, the way that it's set up, it's it's reminiscent of uh, something maybe from the late 50s that, you know, guys were taking them and stripping them down and putting different exhaust and handlebars on them, and I kind of did that. And, uh, that first year I was riding that full dresser, I, I, I was working with a guy in a club, and um, I was working on the railroad, and I had a three-day weekend for the whole time I worked on the railroad. We were working four tens. So I always had real nice long weekends. And and uh, the guy that was in the other club that I was hanging around with had a brother that was in yet another club. And he didn't work. He was kind of a professional bum. And uh, he knew I was off on Friday, Saturday, or, yeah, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And, and when I had my days off, he usually would be at my house knocking on the door early Friday. Come on, let's go riding. Started hanging around with him, and that was uh, my in-depth in, in introduction to motorcycle clubs. And I, I was having a pretty good time and uh, ended up getting in that club. Spent a number of years in that club. Had had some good times. It was uh, lots of laughs. <laughs> Um, the bike that you're talking about, the the bike that you said you built with the swing arm frame, that's the one that we put in the horse magazine a couple years ago. And that thing is still to this day, that's one of those ones where if I had an extra pocket full of money, that, that would be sitting in uh, in my garage. I think I've got a standing order to at least pass on when you do part with it. <laughs> and if not, I'm I'm making that standing order known today. I've got, I've got evidence now, audio evidence of me making a standing order for that thing. But you're into you're you're into um you're into a little bit more than than just the bikes these days. You're you you've got a pretty interesting um Oldsmobile story that's sitting out in that garage. Well, I like I said, I, I had that brother and uncle that were were motorheads, and uh, my my brother actually drag raced um, in the late '60s and early '70s, and he was a, a very big influence on on uh, my interest in motors. Um, when I was 18 years old, I, I think I was probably on my third or fourth car, and that's back when you used to be able to buy a beater for two, three, four hundred dollars. And I was in between cars, and he had a car that he acquired in some car trade. He he didn't drive it; he just acquired it and had the intentions on flipping it and making some money on it. And told me that he had this car for sale. Come over and look at it and. Um, I went over there and, and looked at it, got out of the car, walked up the driveway and saw it sitting in the backyard. It was an Oldsmobile. And I thought, I don't want no stinking Oldsmobile. <laughs> and I got a little closer to it and it was a two door 
Uh, it was black. And said 442 on the side. And I honestly don't even think I knew what a 442 was at the time. And and the whole time I'm looking at it, in the back of my mind, it, it says Oldsmobile on it. <laughs> and then I walked around the side of it and peered into the interior and noticed it had a four-speed. And then I, I started getting a little Peaked more interested. Peaked your interest in a little it. bit. Yeah, I you know, was wondering, well, what's this Oldsmobile got a four-speed in it for? And then, uh, yeah, my brother explained to me a little bit what it was. And, uh, yeah, the price was right, 250 bucks. So I ended up driving it home. And uh, that's kind of how that started. Well, uh, then you, you had the backstory on that is, is you were working at Vio's Pizza. <laughs> right. I, I delivering was, uh, pie in Brightmore. I was delivering pizzas with my Pontiac Catalina. <clears throat> Riding around on my days off on my chopper, and then I had this Oldsmobile. And you you delivered pizza in that and for, once for for those people who don't know don't know Danny personally. Danny has a habit of either hitting the front or back corner of his vehicle at least once when it, during the time that he owns it, and that's how that vehicle became to be parked. Is it not? I, well, I, one of the times that it became parked. I drove it the one summer, and I had three different motors in it because, you know, being 18 years old, not having any brains in your head whatsoever. It was easier to change the engine than the oil or what? I, I hammered that car <laughs> real bad, and uh, I, I was on my third motor, and I ended up crunching the front end of that car. And I took it home and parked it, and that was in 76. So you parked that car in 76. That was the last time that you had driven the car. Right. You and I became friends in 2005. When did you work When did you work with us at the shop at, at JR? Uh, was it about a be, year? Beginning of 07. Beginning of 07. You came to work with us, and I'll never forget the – Hey, man, can you, uh, I need you to help me. I don't know anything about this computer shit or this internet stuff. Uh, can you help me write an ad for Craigslist? I got to sell my Oldsmobile. And I, so I, we wrote the ad and we put it on there and I get a call like 72 hours later. Hey, man, uh, you got to take this off Craigslist. I'm getting way too many calls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty much how that went. <laughs> this guy still has, you still have your, um, your Stingray. That you got in like 67, right? I, I have my original Schwinn Stingray that I got. It was either for my birthday or for Christmas. I think I was 11 or 12 years old when I got that. Yep, still got it. And you still have I, I, a number of things. Your 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 garage is like a catacomb of masculinity from, from the 60s and 70s of this era. And you grew up in um, you grew up in Brightmore. And uh, explain... Explain from somebody who was born and raised there what that what that entails, what that means to somebody that's from Detroit. If someone you know, if someone is from Detroit and they're listening to this right now, they're going like, "God damn!" Uh, here, come here. Let me, you got to hear this. What what would how would you explain that? Um, Brightmore was a little bit of a unique neighborhood, I guess. It was it was a working class neighborhood. Um, for the most part, everybody. Pretty much took care of their property and their house, and all the lawns were cut. Um, it was kind of the other side of the tracks, so to speak. Um, it was a real close-knit neighborhood. I, I was born there. Um, I lived there up until... 93, I think you moved 96. out. 96. Oh, 96. 
a uh, couple different houses during that period, but I, I lived in the neighborhood since, you know, <clears throat> since 96. I moved out to the Burbs. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it was... Uh, 96, I think you shut the lights off on the way out then, right? I mean, uh, you were the last bastion of... Uh, I was right near the, the, the last of the guys to leave. I, I remember one time I was I was going out with this girl that I met in high school and went out with her for probably about 16 years. And um, I, I don't dance um, unless I get pretty drunk. And then it's got to be a slow song. Uh, but I, I used to let her go out with her girlfriends on Friday and Saturday, you know, go to the, to the bars. And she was telling me one time that, that she was at the bar and some guy come up and asked her to dance. And then they sat down afterwards to chit chat for a few minutes and, he asked her where she was from, and she said, well, I'm from Brightmore. And he said, oh, yeah, I know Brightmore. I got my ass kicked there one time. <laughs> um, that's kind of like the kind of neighborhood it was. I mean, you know, there was, uh, like I said, real close-knit. Uh, th- there were several neighborhoods that that, that uh, were within Brightmore. Uh, Warrendale and, well, I guess Warrendale was was. Kind of its own, more its, its own, its own little sub. But I, I mean, there was people from uh, the Six Mile area, the Schoolcraft area, the uh, Rosedale Park area. That that was the other side of the tracks. Rosedale Park people, they their parents had some real good jobs, and they had two cars instead of just one, and they lived in the nice brick homes instead of the clapboard side houses. But uh. Yeah, it's it's uh, there's there's a uh, it's it's diverse, I guess. There was the, the we had we had Irish, we had Italian, we we had your basic standard issue white trash, a few Polacks. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. White trash is a real good description. Um, but th- there was a time when I was living there that I thought that that neighborhood was going to be hillbillies, hippies, and bikers forever. Just because I figured the people that lived there didn't have any money to go anyplace else, so they just would always be there. That's changed over the years. Um, it's it's gone the way of the rest of the city. It's um, gone to shit. I was over there um, last summer, I think last summer, and you know where Lasher and uh, Outer Drive are. There's yeah. that that the Veterans Memorial. Yeah, completely grown over. I mean, no one even takes care of that. You know what I mean? Like that tells me that there's no soul in that neighborhood at all left. Well, that that's what's that's the sad part about that that whole thing is you know I there's this Brightmore reunion every year that uh, girl that that went to my high school puts together and I, I got to give her kudos for that. Her name's Cheryl. Um, she's been trying to keep this thing together for the last few years and for the last few years it's 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 grown a little bit and it's it's a it's pretty interesting going to that and seeing people you haven't seen in 30 years you know like the veterans memorial that you're referring to being all overgrown you know that's that's what i was saying earlier when i was younger when i was a little kid growing up there everybody pretty much took care of the neighborhood or took care of their property took you know the lawns were all cut and things were looking pretty nice uh, there was no couches out in the middle of the street and barbecue grills on the front porch. And, and that's the sad part about it. And I think that's what makes everybody go to that Brightmore reunion is to get together and reminisce about old times when things were good. My brother was here. He lives in Texas now. He was here two years ago, and he wanted to go down memory lane 
So we jumped in the car and drove through the neighborhood and he took a gun with us. I mean, it's it's just changed that much. I mean, it's you you got to be careful driving down on streets anymore. And like I said, it, it's it's uh, gone along with the same trend that the rest of the city did. And like Jason said, just pretty much went to shit. I just feel like there's um, this disconnect that we're that we've mastered being from Metro Detroit, where we really compartmentalize things and we take things when when we're done with something. We're done with it, and I think you know. I think that that move to the burbs that happened, that that white flight, as they call it, <clears throat> that that really, I mean, it it left everything. I mean, like everybody, like I said, you left and turned the lights out on the way out. I mean, it's there's nothing there. There's you can't live there. You can't grocery shop there. You couldn't buy. There's not a hardware store left. There's nothing. I mean, when you go through there, it's barbecue joints, dry cleaners, a few clubhouses. And liquor stores. Yeah, I, I uh, when I was the last house that I lived in in Detroit, I, I moved in there in the early 80s. And it was right on the outskirts. I mean, I lived right on the border of Redford and Detroit. And I was in the in the club at the time. And, and I figured, you know, I was born and raised city boy. I'm going to live in this house for years and years and years and years. And I, I eventually moved out and... I got out while the getting was good. I, I still got, you know, a fair price for my house, and, and uh, it hadn't gone to hell quite yet. And I got out at a real good time and moved out to uh, the suburbs, probably 15 miles west of Detroit. And I can even see myself at some point, if the opportunity arises, moving out even farther and uh I guess that's got to do with getting older and, and, and having different desires as you get older. Um, yeah, I, I was born a city boy, but, man, I don't want no part of living in that city anymore. Um, I like it out here. You don't hear gunshots. Um, I, I used to, when I was younger, buy some firearms if I got a good deal on them. The first thing I did when I lived in Detroit was took it out in the backyard and test-fired it. I would never do that in my backyard here in the suburbs. No. Uh, the, the police would be here in a heartbeat. In a nanosecond. There's not even any cops left in Detroit. Um, one of the things, not to bounce around too much, but to get to, um, there's this, uh, obviously I, you're familiar with the TV shows that are on TV now, like the Sons of Anarchy and stuff like that and how that's portrayed. People don't, um, I don't think people understand that that's not a fair assessment of almost anything that I've ever seen in or around a clubhouse. Is it fair to say, I mean, I know you can't get into detail, but if you could see the Cheshire grin that I'm looking at right now across the table, but I mean, how, how, how ridiculous or not ridiculous or whatever it, it would you say that is? Um, I, I, I getting back to what I said earlier about the club starting up in the city, probably about the same time that, um, all those B-rated motorcycle movies came out. I, I grew up watching those. Uh, Hell's Angels on Wheels and Devil's Angels and so on and so forth. Um, I've got some good friends of mine that that have been around as long or longer than I have that don't miss an episode of Sons of Anarchy. 
I've tried two times to watch that program and can't get through a full episode yet because it's just, to me, so outlandish. Um, I don't know. Maybe some of that stuff goes on in other states where they've got, you know, some of the, some of the bigger clubs, you know, with with some of the storylines that, that I imagine are on there. A the couple times I tried watching it, they were – they were doing some gun running with some 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 Mexican drug cartels. I, I, maybe that's the uniqueness with the clubs in Detroit. Is to my knowledge, none of that stuff's going on. Um, I mean, they, it's it's just a bunch of working class guys that that are riding motorcycles. I mean, ninety eight percent of the guys that I know in clubs are all. Uh, working family man isn't it and i have been told this by several different people and i don't think i've ever asked you this question but you would be able to confirm it tonight most clubs bylaws state that you have to be gainfully employed or otherwise you know legitimately funded i mean i mean there's like there's that component in there where they don't want that they don't want that's not the basis of why they're doing what they're doing no, the, the the club that I'm in now that that's part of the written bylaws is you you must be gainfully employed and be riding a, a legally registered motorcycle. And it has to be a Harley Davidson. It, it, in the club I'm in right now, it does have to be a Harley. You know, on that note, isn't it kind of funny? And I was thinking about this earlier today because you've got an Oldsmobile, and you know I'm a gearhead too. I I'm a Ford guy and whatever, but. It's funny that if you're a car guy, you can be a GM guy, you can be a Ford guy, you can be a Chrysler guy, right? And there's even – there's subsets in there where you could be like a, a guy that's really into Mercury's. Uh, there's a guy that could be really into Pontiacs or what. But you can't – there's – it's a hard, fast line in the motorcycle world where there is not – you can't ride a victory and be in – I, mean, I haven't seen – I mean I know that Sonny Barger supposedly drives a victory vision, but that's – I mean, that could be lore. I, I don't know that for a fact or can confirm it, and I haven't seen it with my own eyes, but there's not an alternative. Well, there, there's there's some clubs that, that allow uh, other brands of motorcycles. Um, but it's fair to say that that's, I mean, that's, you know what I mean? I mean, that's that's kind of an, an oddity and, a, and, a, and an anomaly in itself. Well, I... I Say generally speaking, the outlaw clubs have to project a certain persona, and I guess that Harley Davidson is part of that. I just think it's funny that there's not even been a successful run of any magnitude. I mean, it's arguable. People, there's people that will argue that an Indian was a better motorcycle than a Harley, you know, a real Indian, like an early Indian, but they didn't, they didn't survive that whatever financial thing that happened an owner dies or the economy sucks ass or something like that they, they weren't able to survive that. i just think it's kind of funny that it's not there's no gray area there you either ride a harley or you don't you know what i mean it's, there's not really there's and it's like it's not up for discussion i mean we're just both here laughing about it it's just no if you're anybody that we ride with they ride a harley i mean you know for the most part I can't think of anybody I ride with on a regular basis that doesn't doesn't ride a Harley, even if they own another bike. But you have an Oldsmobile, and I might be I'm in the Ford, so but that's okay. You know, it's just funny the difference between cars and bikes. I guess it's the Motor City thing. I mean, you know. Well, you know the the last American-made motorcycle. I you know, 
I guess when, when some of these clubs were starting out, um, God, I, I don't know the, the exact year. I, I think the Hells Angels got going maybe in the late 40s, early 50s, and that, that consisted of all them guys coming back from World War One. all those Patriots, or World War Two, all those Patriots, and, and that was the American motorcycle that there was. So that, that was it. That was how that started. Right. That patriotism. Well, can you tell um, – you, you still own – Everything you've ever owned, you still have a piece of somewhere. I, I think I, I think you've got your foreskin foreskin framed out in the garage somewhere on the wall. <laughs> um, but you tell me about buying your how different you bought a Harley in two thousand, and you bought a Harley in seventy eight. In two thousand, it was a boom. There was a lot going on. The, the motorcycle had seen a, a regenesis of especially Harleys. Do you remember when you bought your? I, where'd you buy your seventy eight? Well, I got my 78 at Detroit Harley-Davidson on John Lodge and Grand River in downtown Detroit next to the Wonderbread factory. Um, I didn't have to wait for it at all. I, I went down there and put a down payment on it, and they approved my credit, and I was riding that thing in a week. Um, paid 48.80 for it out the door. And in 2000... I bought my Road Glide and was told there was a six-month to a year waiting list. I got lucky. I only had to wait, I think it was seven weeks. but uh, and, and the price quadrupled by then. So you um, paid like around almost 20 for it, right? Just shy of 20, yeah. And you still have that one as well. That's that, the, the purple Road Glide. And that's it. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, – and the – they have evolved a little bit, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> after riding that road gliding and jumping on one of them shovel heads and taking it for a spin, it's, there's a vast difference. Um, it's like getting out of my Corvette and climbing onto my farm combine. <laughs> but the 78's more fun to ride. Sure it is. Um, what about the – I've seen a video. Um, we were at the we were at one of the clubhouses a couple of years ago, you and I, and uh, we saw a video of uh, a Federation party. I remember that. Do you remember the video? Do you remember the party or just the video? I, I wasn't – that was <laughs> – I think that was the year before I got into the club. I got into the, into the club in 79. I think that was in 77 or 78. Kind of glad I missed that party. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> even seeing it years later, there was some things going on on that, on that, that I, uh, was pretty amazed at. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get too much into detail. Of that. I, I know which one you're talking about. That's the fault. It involves an evacuation of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. An evacuation <laughs> of sorts. Did the parties get better when, um, obviously did you guys you guys saw a, a whole new crop of people that were interested once the TV stuff started? I, I would assume in the early two thousands. Um, yeah, there there was I don't know there was a growth that I saw in those those late seventies, early eighties, and then things kind of seemed to have gone by the wayside. And then just here in the last five to ten years, I, I think there's been a another uh, rash of, of growth as, as far as, you know, people wanting to get involved with clubs. And, you know, I guess that's just because of the, the large number of people that are riding motorcycles now. I, I mean, 
back in the day, I, you know, you rode around on a Harley Davidson. I, I, I'd say 90% of the people that rode Harleys were involved in a club, you know, at some capacity. And, and the guys that didn't ride in clubs rode them other bikes. Uh, um, but now just so many people are buying Harleys and, you know, I, I think that's getting back to, you know, the, what influenced me a little bit, you know, was, was, I guess, watching some of those biker movies from the sixties and, um, I, I, I don't know. I, it's hard to explain. I mean, you got, you got doctors and lawyers and, and, uh, businessmen riding Harleys, um, probably not hardcore, like, like bikers, you know, that live on them, but. You know they want to put the leather on and uh, put their put their costume on and go for yeah, a ride. Yeah, you know, put that that hard guy look on their face and go riding around and and be what people perceive bikers to be. What what was the best event you've and what was the what's if I say to you, tell me what the best event you were ever at. What what instantly pops in your mind? Like oh, I can remember, you know, blah blah blah, nineteen whatever. In, you know, like something that stands out. Well, I I didn't. You know, I always worked, you know, getting back to that, it was in the bylaws that you should be gainfully employed and, and own a uh, legally registered Harley-Davidson. I always had a job, and um, I, I wasn't able to go to Sturgis, you know, at the drop of a hat or run down to Daytona. I, I've been to Daytona a couple times for bike week, but I've never been out to Sturgis. I, I missed out on a lot of stuff, but, you know, we had a lot of local parties going on around here due to the fact that there were so many clubs. Uh, but one of the best parties that I went to was an abate party out in Flint, Michigan. Uh, that was a real good time. And uh, I, th I think the second best party I've been to probably would be there's a club out, out by Lansing. Uh, they have an annual party that's been going on for since that club's been in existence. I don't know exactly when they started, but uh, that that was a real good party. Them guys had a piece of property that was amazing, rolling hills with a pond and uh, all manicured. Was looked like a golf course. That was a real good party. Did you see like a swing in things? Like I, I've been to a couple clubhouses that I know cost well over a million dollars to build, and I've been and of several clubhouses that I, you know, that I don't think there's a million dollars wrapped up in the whole thing over the course of 30 years. And I, I don't get a, I don't get a feeling that there's any less of what was really the meat and potatoes, of what's supposed to be there. How do you think, how, what do you, I mean, what, what goes through your mind when you go to a clubhouse? that's like really super, super posh or nice or that. I mean, is it, <laughs> what's your initial reaction? Gee, how long have they been into white slavery and drug distribution? Uh, <laughs> no, not really. No. Uh, I, I look at a, at a nice place and and uh, I, I figure, gee, these guys got their shit together. Do you feel that like bikers that are doing? And, and I'm not. I'm, I'm certainly not trying to goad anybody into saying anything. I'm just having conversation about like the difference between. I can remember growing up and what my dad was like and what his friends were like. And, and I know, you know, what my friends are like and people my age, it, it is, there's no question is different. I mean, without even trying to sugarcoat or not sugarcoat anything, there's a different, you know, we're, we're into technology now. I see that in, you know, I, I have yet to be in a clubhouse where they're like, Oh, you know, we have free Wi-Fi or anything like that. I mean, you know, I still enjoy nickel beer night over on joy road, but what, 
where's the where's the where's the line cross where it's not where it's not about motorcycles anymore? Where does that where do you see that do you see that coming in to play? I mean, do you find yourself thinking that when you're? I mean, you're you know you've you've been in it thirty plus years now. Is there is there that pullback where you're like, you know what, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what it's supposed to be. Or is it just like I don't have time for it. This isn't you know, or I'm just old and I'm fucking tired. Well, that's a that's a pretty complex question. Um, I, I've had this conversation with other people revolving around um, when I was working at your bike shop. Uh, I, I remember in particular this guy, Mike was his name, um, came into the shop one day and said that there was something on his bike rattling. Uh, could I check it out? And then we walked out there and discovered that there was a bolt missing on the horn bracket and uh, pointed that out to him. And, and he said, well, can you fix it? <laughs> and I almost, I thought he was joking because all the motorcycles I've ever had, they got out of warranty and never saw the inside of a shop ever again. I changed my own, own oil and I, you know, maintained to the best of my ability. I mean, some things are too technical for my expertise, but um, for the most part, you know, I, I took care of that all, all my on my own. And, and working at the bike shop, the, the people that would come in there for some of the things that they would come in there for just I, 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 it was behind beyond my comp- comprehension. I, I just I didn't understand why why can't this guy change his own oil? Why is he paying me to do this? Um, granted, part of the reason I did a lot of my own maintenance was because you know I, I'm not a rich guy, so it was an attempt to save some money. And, and in the process, I learned a little bit about you know my bike. Um, I know that uh, automobiles and motorcycles, both with the technology, are the the shade tree mechanic. I guess is almost gone, but um, you know maybe that's got something to do with it. Um, as far as getting away from the, the roots of, of, you know, motorcycling. Um, not everybody's got that expertise. Uh, more guys are into uh, working on computers than, than getting their hands dirty. Uh, maybe that's got something to do with that. Uh, I don't know. Um, the aura of being in a club for me has changed a little bit and, and I, I don't know. I, I, it, it's hard to put my finger on it. Um, I've wondered about it and I, I still don't have the answer for that. I, I and I'm, I'm not sure what, what those changes are. It's just different. Um, and just maybe that's because I'm getting older. I've, I've found over the past couple of years, <coughs> I'm, I'm having a little bit of a, a midlife crisis and I've come to the realization that I'm slowly turning into my dad. <laughs> I run around my house chasing my my wife and kids around, shutting lights off behind them. And, and uh, everything out in my garage is mounted on wheels so I don't have to pick anything up. And uh, So you're working smarter instead of working harder. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, that's part of I mean, it. Shit we can all learn from, from our dads. But I, I'm... Uh, I'm 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 having issues with getting older. I'm I'm not I'm not liking it too much. I'm, I'm cold all the time now. I, <laughs> I remember my dad would have his heat turned up on eighty when I'd go over there with a blanket on him, and I'm I got beads of sweat rolling off me, and 
and he, he would just tell me, well, damn it, I'm cold. And uh, I find myself doing the same things. Um, I've got to wear reading glasses on occasion. I don't like that. I'm, I'm a grandfather now, and it's kind of weird to deal with. On the upside, I don't have to grunt when I take a dump. I'm, I'm, I'm having a good time with it. That that time that uh, I had to almost sell it, um, you know, I've gone from, from that to – I, I still can't believe it. I go out in the garage and it's sitting there all done. And, and it's, you know, there was a time when I, I never thought that was going to happen. And, and it's, it's just, uh, it's great having it on the road. I'm having a lot of fun with it. It was, uh, you know, getting back to that influence from my uncle and my brother, you know, um, them, them always being motorheads, you know, now I got my hot rod on the road and I'm having a ball with it. Um, getting back to the getting older thing. Um, I don't ride my bike if it's going to rain. I don't ride my bike if it's too hot. I don't ride my bike if there's a crosswind. <laughs> it's, you know, I got to dig it out of the garage, unlock it, unlock the garage, open the gate, put all my leather shit on, and it's just so much easier to jump in the car. Um, and, and I attribute that to getting a little older now, too. But a, a lot of it is just I, I got a new toy now. And, you know, I've been riding a motorcycle since I was 17. And, yeah. I guess maybe the glimmer has worn off of that a little bit and I'm um, just having fun with that car now. Um, you know, I, I, like I say, I go out in the garage and I sometimes can't believe it's actually sitting there and all I got to do is turn the key because it was, it was far from being that three years ago. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that changed recently here in Michigan was you, the, the helmet law and the, on the motorcycles. Were you aware of that? Yeah, <laughs> I, I did hear something about that. It was on the internet. I don't. I don't know. Oh, if it, wow! Yeah, I didn't hear it from the internet. <laughs> believe me, um, that that motorcycle um, helmet law. That personally, that never bothered me one way or the other. I didn't give a shit whether we had to wear helmets or not. Yeah, you know, I just to be honest with you, back when I had a head full of hair, um, and don't get me wrong, I still got a nice hairline. <laughs> it's just not as long as it was. <laughs> it's um, a maintenance thing. The the helmet kept my hair from getting tangled and messed up, so I didn't mind wearing it. Uh, and that never bothered me one way or the other. I, I I guess I don't know. There's there's several different ways to look at that. My take on that was well, it's probably a better idea to wear it in the city because that's when most mishaps could happen, and there's uh, fire plugs that you can bounce off of and. And, you know, cars that you can bounce off of. When you're out on the highway going 70 or 80 miles an hour, you don't have all those obstacles. I think your chances of getting hurt are probably a little bit less, probably a lot less. Traffic's a little bit lighter. And chances are at 80 miles an hour, a helmet's not going to do you any good anyway, so why worry about it? Right. That's, <clears throat> I. you know, I don't have to wear one in Florida. We, we don't have a helmet law down there. I mean, there's some, some guidelines. I guess you have to have a certain amount of insurance and stuff like that. But Christ, I've, when I first moved down there, I didn't wear it. But the bugs down there are like pterodactyl size and they hurt when they hit you in the face. So I started wearing it because of that and ended up, there's too many blue hairs down there. Mm. Just gonna, they, I think you know, it's like being in a giant video game and, and you're the, you're the one that only has, you know, inf uh, a finite number of chances in life. So I, I wear mine all the time down there too. But I never thought I would. I was, it was a sticking point for me that I thought, you know, we deserve the, the right to be able to say what we want to do and, and not do. And 
now I find that I have a choice and I, I wear it as well. So, uh, you know, I, I think that was everybody's original bitch was, you know, who are they to mandate that we have to wear helmets? That should be our own decision. Um, I mean, you know, where do you draw the line to that? I mean, you know, they got seatbelts in cars. Well, gee, shouldn't that be my decision whether I want to wear one or not? So, I mean, I have a hard time understanding the logic in that. I was just thinking about that the other day that we didn't wear seatbelts when I was a kid. We had my mom's arm. Right. You know, shoots them right. the You know, I started thinking about like how how different and how bubble wrapped the world is for us. I, I think that's where where people become stupid is when they have things taken care of for them. And you know, I used to have my my mom would slam on the brakes and put her arm. I don't know what that would yeah. that would stop. But but this is also the same woman that used to blow hot air into my ear when I had an earache because and for some reason I thought that worked too. So maybe there's some truth to it, but. Yeah, I, I agree with you with the, the seatbelt thing. I, I don't think you should have to tell a smart person what to do. I think smart people should just do smart things. Well, I come from that generation that, you know, I, when I was a little kid, some cars didn't have seatbelts at all and metal dashboards. And, uh, I, you know, my mom stuck her arm across the seat a couple times that I can remember as well. Um I never wore seatbelts, even though I had seatbelts in my car, because we didn't have a law about it. And it, after they, they passed the law about wearing seatbelts, it still took me a long time to get used to wearing one, and I've got a couple tickets to prove it. Have you seen the video where they crash a 2008 Impala into a um, – or 2008 Impala or Malibu into a 1958 Chevy Bel Air? Um, that would have been on the internet? Yeah. You haven't said, I'm, I'm judging by that. You know, I, I, and you and I have had this conversation about how well-built things are back then. And, and you got to see that video, that video, the 2008, um, Impala or, or Malibu, whichever it happened to be, um, survived the crash. That 58 did not survive that crash. It was yeah. amazing. I seem to remember, and I don't know if, if it was on TV, one of them speed channel programs I was watching, or if I read it, or I, I don't remember, but they took a, a old 50s era Cadillac and a new Cadillac and, and did a, a crash test on them and to see which one uh, survived the best, and I, I believe the newer one did. Um, you know, you got to take the good with the bad. I mean, the new cars, um, they're designed in such a way that the the passenger compartment remains intact in the event of a collision, but it costs you a million dollars to fix the car. Agreed. Where the other ones, I think, took a beating, but there was no safety measures inside the car at all, so inevitably the passengers took a beating as well. Yeah, here's the video I'm, I'm actually showing it to you right now. This is the crash, a 2009 Malibu and a... Uh... 1959 Bel Air. I was off by a year, but that thing. It if you if you go to YouTube and Google, um, <clears throat> or go to YouTube and search uh, 1959 Chevy crash or old versus new. I believe what it is, but that car comes apart. I mean, it, and they said that all of the occupants in the vehicle would have been would have been dead or, or worse. Yeah, you you can see where the the passenger compartment and that 59 is is going through hell but you know you got to take the good with the bad uh, you know the cars were cooler looking back then they had a lot of a lot of character and uh you know the performance was pretty cool i'm you know i'm 
comparing apples to oranges, I guess, as far as uh, performance. But, um, you know, and along with those cars that had character, I, I wonder how many people got injured on 1959 Cadillac fins just walking by them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you got to take the good with the bad. You know, when I was a little kid, we never wore helmets and knee pads when we rode our bicycles. No, you got skinned up knees, and you know, some every once in a while, a kid fell on his head a little too hard, and you know, he wet his pants again until he was in tenth grade. Well, and, and I, I think that made us smarter. I think it does. I we think we it, learned our lessons well, and and nowadays, you know, the the government mandates all these safety things for this and that and everything. Um, there's no lessons to be learned. So we've got to watch old YouTube videos of people getting hurt. To, to realize, you know, I, I think there's a disconnect too with, with people. I think there's a lack of, and I, you know, I don't want to go on a video game rant, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm around a lot of kids and, and, and I hear things they say and in the way that like a fight is talked about. I mean, when I grew up, you, you had to get your ass kicked at least one time to know what it felt like, you know what I mean? And I think everybody deserves at least one ass whipping before they're, before they're in a situation where they're going to whip someone's ass. And, and I mean, I'm, you grew up with an older brother, so I'm sure you had it handed to you more than one, on one occasion. Oh yeah. <laughs> Him and I had our moments. But, um, and when I was going to school, that school I went to, there was a fight every day behind the church every day. Um, doing I, the I, Lord's I, work. That, yeah. That, that just doesn't go on anymore. Cause I don't know, you talk about a fight now and you know, it's usually a gunfight or a knife fight or cause, uh, I don't know where these kids are getting influenced. I think maybe from some of the shit that's on TV, I guess. I don't know. Uh, when when we were watching the old cowboy movies and TV shows back in the 50s and 60s, the guys got shot, but they never bled. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you watch, have you, have you seen the first-person shooter video games? No. They're straight up. I mean, it is, they make, I think it's done without, I don't, I'm going to sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist, but I think the, I think the, the, the federal government is funding the video games just to build an army of completely unempathetic young men and women that are willing to go into some crazy place where brown people live and shoot them up and take their take their oil and in their their opium. I wouldn't put anything past the government. Yeah, and you know that's a and that's something that is a I find is a resounding common thread between people who are like minded where you sit on whether you regardless of where you sit. Politically, on what side of the fence? I think there's a uh, an underlying tone there that there is definitely nothing is above or below anybody that's that's seeking power. I think that's an anybody with an ego that wants power is is is, is wants it for the wrong reason. Well, one of the things that I've thought about on occasion, and and I don't waste too much time thinking about it because you know from where I'm sitting on the food chain, there's very little I can do about it, anyways. But um, all this talk about all these governments, you know, specifically ours, but you know, you hear about the ones overseas that are having financial trouble too. Um, they're they're worried about going broke and not being able to pay off all these debts. And and um, gee, I don't know if we're going to continue to have social security because we can't afford it. And and uh, seems to me like illnesses, uh, cancer. Man, they've been working on a cancer cure for, since I was a little kid, uh, since before I can remember. And it seems like 
there's a, a rash of cancer going on right now. Um, do they have a cure for it? But the government's uh, not letting the, the the cancer cure get out to the people because, you know, maybe is that their way of thinning the herd so they don't have to pay out all this Social Security? I, I, I don't know. I have no – you know, there's more people alive on the planet right now. This is according to National Geographic magazine. There's more people alive on the planet right now than have died in all of history. Wow. That's a lot of people. It is. So. Yeah, there's just there's too much happening all in a short amount of time and just not enough people brainstorming the solutions to it, I guess. Uh, I don't know. I, 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 part of that getting older thing, I really – really relish the older days you know god when i was growing up man we didn't worry about anything um and i guess that's due to being younger and not having anything to worry about but um <laughs> shit is so out of the box now it's it's unbelievable there there's i don't i don't think there's anything that would that would be on the evening news that would surprise me anymore at this point no we just had a guy eat someone's face in miami so i think that pretty much Smoking bath salts, so I mean, you're you're you. I think we've crossed the threshold into an official zombie apocalypse being a potential, based off of you know, God knows what. Yeah, nothing would surprise me at this point. Nothing. It's nuts. Well, cool, man. Believe it or not, that is an hour of our. That's how fast that hour goes. Hmm. So I appreciate you doing this with me, and I'll make sure that you uh, you get a good copy of it and you get to hear it. And uh, I got to do some some kind of putting things together, and I'll put my theme song in there for us and everything, so that you can we can hear that. Yeah, this was more of a guess than I thought. I you know earlier this morning when we were talking about it a little bit, I I was a little concerned that I was going to be um, like a deer in the headlights kind of. When this thing went on, you know, which is, you know, uh, this isn't a, a video thing. It's a, or it's a video thing and not a visual thing. But, right. Uh, uh, you know what I mean when I say deer in the headlights. <clears throat> uh, but, yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was a gas. Cool. Well, hopefully we can do it again when I come back around. All right, man. Thanks. Cool, man. See you. All right. to the Hell on Wheels podcast with your host, Jason Coleman. Thank you for listening. Remember to rate us on iTunes.